There were people who looked like they were about to explode. They couldn't breathe. Some of them were racked with cramps. Where's Arma? Dead. And your uncle Yasser? Dead. And Abu Hamdu? Dead. We don't have anyone with any experience of toxic gas. And even if we did, the team would be too small to treat all those people. Aliom, Syria's children, the toxic gas and us. Episode 2, The Saviors of Khan Shaikhoum. Yosef is on his way out to play soccer. The road his crossing is currently controlled by Tahrir al-Sham. That's a radical Islamist rebel group listed as terrorists in Germany. They're fighting against the Assad regime and against the so-called Islamic State. The rebels have set up checkpoints on roads leading to Yosef's neighborhood. Fighters with pickups and machine guns stop anyone wanting to pass. The situation is total chaos. There's no way of knowing who'll be in charge from one day to the next. What I want most of all is for us to live in peace. But that'll only work once the war is over and the airstrikes stop. Then we won't be trapped in the town anymore. But although his mother is afraid for her children and wants them all to stay home, there's no way Yusuf's going to sit around doing nothing. He usually calls on his friends after school to see if they want to play. Sometimes they just kick the ball around between cars and rubble on the streets. But not far from the house, there's even a proper fenced-off pitch. Kick it to me! No, pass it to him! Mohammed! Mohammed! Yusuf chases the ball. Fifteen, sixteen children are running around like crazy. They all want a shot at the goal. That's not a goal. You're a brilliant player, Yusuf. The pitch used to be even busier than this. But since April 4th, fewer kids come down to play. That's because they're dead. The chemical weapon that slammed into the ground 450 meters from his house didn't just wipe out most of Yusuf's family. Almost all his neighbors lost someone. The bomb ripped a hole in a close-knit community. One person who risked his own life to help his neighbors is Aboud al-Bakri. He was one of the few first responders on the scene. Ten minutes later, my friend arrived on his motorbike and ran into the house. He said I should get dressed straight away and come with him, that the bomb had come down right next to our friend Fuad's house. Aboud al-Bakri is an ex-soldier, 34 years old. He lives with his wife and four children in Khan Shaykhoun, a few streets away from the Al-Yusuf family. We asked our reporter Moes to reconstruct events following the missile strike. We want to know exactly what happened when the gas spread through the streets of Yusuf's neighborhood. Moes also makes videos for us wherever possible. We see Moes and Aboud going to the crater where the chemical weapon tore into the asphalt. It's not much bigger than a regular pothole. Today, it's covered by a thin sheet of plastic, held in place by three stones. The image of a skull on a small red sign indicates that this was a toxic gas attack. 
On April the 4th, all Abud can see here in the street is yellow smoke blocking his view. Those able to help pull off contaminated clothes and lift the wounded onto trucks, spraying them with water from hose pipes. Many children are lying strangely contorted on the ground. The smoke burns the lungs. People pull their sweaters over their faces. There were people whose bodies were as stiff as wood. They were frothing at the mouth, and their eyes were deep red. They looked like they were about to explode. They couldn't breathe. Some were racked with cramps. And we were scared that this was not just any bomb, but toxic gas. Abud has never seen anything like it. He runs across to one child, picks him up, carries him to a car, then back, the next child, back to the car again. Anyone with a car takes the injured to hospital. There are nowhere near enough ambulances. At some point, Abud can no longer get through. He runs to his friend Fuad's house. The bomb exploded just a few steps away. Now he retraces the very same route with our reporter Moes, showing us the way through the houses. I entered the house and saw Fuad's sister lying down with his daughters. They looked as though they were sleeping. I took the youngest daughter, Vada, out first. She was as stiff as a board. I could no longer think. But I was sure Vada wouldn't survive the day. Vada is a five-year-old girl with large brown eyes and short dark curly hair. We were so moved by her picture, we've hung it up in our office. It's a picture that the world should see, like the image of the drowned refugee boy washed up on a Turkish beach. Wada's photo is a video still. She's lying on a dirty street on a sheet of cardboard, her eyes staring into nothingness. It looks as though she's dead. <laughs> Meanwhile, out on the street, all access routes have been blocked off, with only ambulances and water tankers allowed through. But there are far too few of those. The Al-Rahma Field Hospital in Khan Shaykhun is three kilometers from the bomb site. Many victims are brought here. Clinic manager Hazim Najem is on duty. Hundreds of people came to us at once and we couldn't help them. They had dilated pupils, frothing mouths, muscle cramps and low pulse rates. We didn't have any equipment or medication to treat them. We undressed them, washed them with water and took them to other hospitals. Three hundred injured. That's the official figure. But clinic manager Hazim says eight hundred are admitted that day. He and his team are totally overwhelmed. The nearest big hospital is 50 kilometers away. Some of the wounded are even taken as far as the Turkish border. That's a two-and-a-half-hour journey by car. For many, help comes too late. After just a few hours, news reports are claiming it was sarin a prohibited toxic gas, one of the most feared warfare agents. Sarin is odorless and colorless. It's absorbed by the airways, skin and eyes, and acts within seconds. It blocks the transmission of signals between nerve cells, which is why victims die of respiratory paralysis. There are antidotes, but not at the hospital in Khan Shaykhun. We don't have adequate medical provisions here. 
we've no experience of having to treat so many injured. Also, we don't have anyone with any experience of toxic gas. And even if we did, the team would be too small to treat all those people. Four and a half hours after the chemical weapon was dropped on Khan Sheikhoun, the Assad regime bombs the hospital. The first missile hits at 11 a.m., followed by four more, at precisely the time when most of the injured are there. The generators fail. The hospital is without power. Assad's goal is clear. All evidence must be destroyed. In 2013, he yielded to international pressure and pledged to destroy his stockpile of chemical weapons. Assad wants no eyewitnesses. Dr. Hazim shows us his hospital, or at least what's left of it. The equipment's unusable and the ambulances have been destroyed too. It's too dangerous for Hazim to enter the hospital. There are metal struts poking out of the piles of rubble and medical equipment buried under the debris. The hospital used to have operating theaters and treatment rooms, three ambulances and 30 to 40 members of staff. Nevertheless, Hazim was able to save a few people's lives. We can't forget the image of the motionless girl on the sheet of cardboard, Warda. What happened to her? Did she make it to hospital? We discover that because first responder Boot reacted quickly enough, she survived. Aboud visits Varda and her family regularly. He's a friend of her father. This time, he's joined by a reporter, Moas. They usually drink chai together and smoke. On this occasion, Wada also comes into the room. Her dark curls have been tied into plates. She's wearing a spotted jumper with a cartoon rabbit on it. Wada climbs up onto her father's shoulders. He stretches out his arms like a plane and bobs to and fro. A father and his daughter at play. How lucky that Aboud was able to save her. What a wonderful moment, we think. And your uncle Yasser? Dead. And Abu Hamdu? Dead. And your cousin Siham? Dead. We don't get the translation of their conversation until later. It sounds like some kind of rhyming game at first. But Wada's father is saying the names of dead relatives, asking his daughter if they're now in paradise. Wada has just been scrolling through pictures of those murdered relations. Images we would never show our children. The way the father speaks to his daughter about the dead appears absurd to us. Incomprehensible. But every family has buried many loved ones. Wada was also already clinically dead. Were you killed by the toxic gas? Yes. But then how come you're here? Did you survive? Yes. Did you want to go to paradise? Yes. Yes. 
بيموتوا لوين بيروحوا؟ جني انت بدك تروحي على جني؟ تاخذيني معي؟ What sort of regime kills its own children? It makes death a feature of daily life. Why does nobody do anything? Why is the West so quick to look away? What about the sarin he wasn't supposed to have anymore? Where did that come from? Many of our questions lead us to Germany. Find out why in episode 3, Yusuf's assignment. Aliom. Syria's children, the toxic gas, and us. The podcast that gives the voiceless a voice. <laughs>